0: The Rock Pile Report
2: with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder Drew Gear.
0: Bills make me want to. Here's a third and goal. Gonna go to Benjamin. Up top he goes. Oh, he caught it. Did he get the feet down? He's in! What a catch! With two seconds to go in the half, the Bills regain the lead.
3: So we just had a play in the Buffalo New England game. Kelvin Benjamin at the back of the end zone ruled a catch on the field, goes to review. Two issues here. When did he get control and did he get both feet down? He did get control of the football before he went out of bounds, and the left foot did drag. But did it drag while he had control, or was the foot off the ground? After review, the call on the field was overturned. Again, we're being overly technical. When you look at the angles that were available, there's nothing clear and obvious to overturn the call on the field. In our estimation here, the call on the field was a touchdown. There was nothing clear and obvious. The call on the field should have stood.
1: Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rockfile Report podcast. I am your host, Buffalo Bills season ticket holder Drew Gear. To my right is my producer Chris Krueger, and that was Jim Nance and Tony Romo from CBS Sports, and Dean Blandino from Fox Sports. Happy holidays, everybody! Hopefully every one of you got some time with your friends, with your family, with loved ones, with people you haven't seen in a while. Hopefully you got out, you had some laughs, you had some eats, and you didn't let the NFL ruin what otherwise could have been a fantastic weekend for you. From what I can tell, a lot of you guys out there in Bill's Mafia must have been really, really bad this year. Because not only did Santa pack our stockings to the brim with coal, he took a shit down the chimney on his way out.
2: I'm, actually, I'm disappointed that we're not going to have a, a eulogy this year because we're still in the playoff hunt.
1: I know. Usually we eulogize the season that came before it. When there's, there's a funeral procession, it's, it's a big deal. That being said, here we are. Week 17. And the Bills, after all their trials and tribulations, the things that went right, the things that imploded and cratered like uh, Wile E. Coyote in the middle of the desert, still have a chance to end the drought. I mean, it's kind of strange to think about how we got here. Chris, does it it seem weird to you that after every... In what seems like a very poor season, we're still here.
2: It's amazing that we are where we are with what I would... Consider we weren't we're not as talented as we were exiting last season. You trade away Watkins, Darius. You get rid of every all of the Rex players, and you just figured that this was going to be a rebuilding year, and it was going to turn into a four and twelve season. But somehow we are still involved in the playoffs for
1: the first time since two thousand four. We are going into week the final week of the season with something to play for. Which is incredible to me. Which is why here to kick off the show tonight, we're kind of breaking, uh, we're breaking ranks here. We are going to start off with our weekly AFC playoff picture update.
4: Uh, Playoffs?
3: Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me?
4: Playoffs? I know, Maura. I'm
1: just as surprised as you are. When you take a look at the AFC as a whole, the divisions are set and it appears that the Patriots have officially clinched home field advantage through the entirety of the postseason. Good, great, grand, wonderful. To hell with those guys. I honestly think that with a defense as talent-starved and as shallow as theirs, they are absolutely begging to get upset by somebody in either the divisional or the championship round. And honestly, I couldn't think of a better group of fans for it to happen to. At home, finish their season the way it started, a blowout loss in front of their fans. Ugh. The other bye has been locked up by the Steelers, and the Chiefs are, are basically locked into where they are. Nothing the top can four change. is all locked. Everyone is set. So now you have to move on to the wild card, and this is where things are still an absolute mess. There are four teams still in the running for the wild card, and unfortunately for Buffalo, we are at the bottom of that pile looking up. The Ravens and Titans currently hold the fifth and sixth spots in the playoff standings, with the Chargers and Bills rounding out the top eight. It kind of sucks because while the Bills can't make the playoffs at all with an eight and eight record due to the tiebreakers, we also can't get in simply by winning our game. We do not control our own destiny.
2: That's why we just got to control what we can control, and that's beat those flamboyant losers from Miami.
1: <laughs> so essentially, there's a, there's, I mean, there's a million permutations of this, and it's been talked to death on every podcast, every news outlet. But essentially, this is what it comes down to. The Bills win over Miami. That's, for, that's paramount to the Bills making the playoffs. We also need a number of things to happen. If Note that if the Ravens lose to Cincinnati.
2: And we win. And we win. We're in. We're in the playoffs.
1: Now, anybody who watched the Ravens play at home against the Colts, they struggled. They struggled mightily against the Colts. I mean that's that's embarrassing. It was an embarrassing game for the Ravens
5: on Saturday.
2: Yeah, I'll give Cincinnati a shot so to to, to beat uh, to beat Baltimore because it's a division game. So even though Cincinnati's technically got nothing to play for, if you could keep somebody from your division out of the playoffs, you're you're going to bring that level of intensity to the game.
1: I mean, we did it to the Jets years ago, so it can happen to anybody. A Ravens loss gets the Bills in point blank in period, or a Titans loss and a Chargers loss to Jacksonville and a, and a Chargers loss to Oakland. Now everyone's saying, okay, the Jaguars—they've—they've they've made their—you uh, know—they've locked in their spot. They can't change where they are in the in the playoff rankings. So what did the Jaguars have to play for? Well, I'll tell you this: you go to Pro Football Talk, Doug Marone flat out says we're playing to win this week. You talk about what's at stake, and then you hear it from the players. In interviews this week, players from the Jaguars flat out said that even though they knew that they clinched their division this past weekend, that locker room had no, there there was no joy in that locker room. Because they have not really lost many games this year. And they have not lost back-to-back games at all over the course of the entire season. Doug Marone is trying to send a message to his squad saying, listen, we do not want to go into the postseason on a down note because teams that come in on a slide have a history of getting bounced. So with that being said, the Titans' matchup with the Jacksonville Jaguars is not a cakewalk, especially knowing that DeMarco Murray will not play. He has a grade 3 MCL tear. I mean, that's that's a huge blow to that offense. And then on the other side of the ball, you've got Oakland. Oakland was hanging in there with the Eagles last night. Now, whether that's because Carson Wentz wasn't there, I, I don't know. But Oakland was still in the football game late into the game. And, in fact, the pick six that Carr threw actually cost me $100 in fantasy football. So thanks for that. Quote-unquote elite Derek Carr, you're, did, a, you're did, a fucking bum.
2: Did you win money? I did. How much did you win? 200 Okay, I got $100 back in my big money league. And then I, uh, the lesser money league, I won that. So, moral of the story, folks, is I'm better at fantasy football than Drew.
1: <laughs> My point here is, when you're looking at the Chargers, this is a team that, with Bryce Petty at quarterback, still almost lost to the New York Jets. Still almost lost to them. I would argue that even with all their problems, Oakland is a much tougher opponent, simply because of, by virtue of the fact, they have better, better offensive talent than the Jets currently have.
2: There's always something different. This is what I like about the NFL. They, I, think they, I think it's the last two weeks. I know it's the last week for sure. Every game is uh, a division game, and there's no. just a, a different level of intensity in division games.
1: No, and, and so what it comes down to is there are a million different permutations of this. If all four teams are 9-7, and seven, the Bills get in. Okay, If the Bills, Titans, and Ravens are all 9-7, and seven, the Bills get in. If the Bills, Ravens, and Chargers are all 9-7, and seven, the Bills get in. If the Bills, the Titans, and the Chargers are all 9-7 and seven, and the Titans don't make the cut, I mean the Ravens don't make, they, they win and go to 10 wins and we're tied with the Titans and Chargers, we're out by virtue of tiebreakers. If we're tied just with the Titans, we lose. If we're tied just with the Chargers, we lose. If all three teams make it to 8 and 8, we lose. Essentially, we have we have to win our game and hope that these other divisional matchups hopefully these away teams, I guess I shouldn't even call them away teams. Hopefully these teams that people think don't have much to play for bring their A game the way the Bills did against the Jets a couple years ago and they kind of will help push us into that spot. And that's that's what we have left to root for. Oh, it's a weird feeling, and I'm I, I'm actually in a very zen place when it comes to all this right now. I really am. I, I mean, and you wouldn't think so considering everything that's gone on around the football team and around the league this week. And we're going to kick this all off with this week's Bills News Update. For the first time in a long time, the NFL is actually doing something smart. It was announced on Monday that the league has officially canceled Sunday Night Football and moved the Ravens, Chargers, and Bills games to 425 p.m. Eastern Standard to match that of the Tennessee Titans. This move makes a lot of sense. For the last two years, NCAA football has attempted to put the first round of its playoff games on New Year's Eve, and in 2015 saw a 40% drop in their ratings from the previous year, which was also down from the previous year's bowl games on New Year's Eve. It was, I mean, it was a, It was a kick in the groin, to be honest. And it led them to moving the games to New Year's Day this year in hope of landing a larger captive audience, considering most people are probably sitting around their houses, hungover, probably not able to do a whole lot, except, I don't know, maybe open a fresh beer and watch some football. So having said that, the NFL apparently is paying attention to this. By having all of the important games on at the same time in the afternoon, Instead of staggering them, they remove the chances that that later period will see a rating sag. Because you think about it, Chris. If you're a fan of the Buffalo Bills and your game is at 1 o'clock and you lose, are you watching the other games?
2: Probably not. Okay. The thing the thing that I like about the, the 425 games, like with the Titans, the Chargers, everybody that we're in the playoff race with is at 425. Mm-hmm. Um. It doesn't, it won't help. It won't, one of them was at one o'clock. It won't psych you out knowing that you're going on the field and you have to win because somebody true. played at one and you know that they lost
5: mm-hmm.
2: and you just, you get win and you're in and then you start might, you may, might make some mental mistakes. I don't know. I, I think, I just think
1: it's I, I smart know to have
2: them all at the same time. I think
1: it's smart to put them all at the same time because like I said, this is New Year's Eve. You know, around four, but by six, seven o'clock at night, most people know what they're doing for the evening and they're on their way to making plans, heading out to wherever they're supposed to be going. They're meeting with family, friends. That's the nature of New Year's Eve, which is why the NCAA realized, hey, we can't keep putting our football games on this night because there's just not a large, large enough audience. I'm
2: just irritated that I'm going to get a late start to Ubering on New Year's Eve because I I hate New Year's Eve with uh, with a passion. You know, you were telling me Melissa was having a party, and you're like, yeah, why don't you come? How about fucking no? I'm going to go make money in Uber and hopefully get laid doing it. Yeah,
1: if, I, good, if I pick up some drunk chick good luck, at 4 a.m. Good luck with all of that. As stupid as Chris sounds right now, the NFL seems pretty smart in doing this. Having said that, the NFL has done some incredibly stupid things. The NFL, the NFL's officiating is at its worst. And we have a significant problem with Al Riveron. Trust me, I know that there's a huge portion of the fan base that is still angry about Sunday. So let me put a lot of it into context for you because there's a lot more going on here than I think a lot of our fans, you know, the Bills fans think about.
2: I think, I think the Bills fans want to know where were you at the catch? The Benjamin catch.
1: (laughs) Give us the scene for you. I was firmly seated behind the bar. By seated, I mean pacing. But I was behind the bar. And when I saw the throw, you know, I was still shaking my head from Charles Clay's drop. And I see that throw, and it looks like a touchdown. And I fist pump, and I'm like, okay. And in my head, I'm like, maybe I actually am going to open a beer. Maybe I'm going to break my own rule, and I'm going to drink before this family Christmas party I have. And then I I just see it, and I said to myself, you know what? No, no, they're gonna find a way to fuck us over on this. And when it and Larissa, my fiance, flat out was like, no, no, that that looks good, that looks good. And when they when they called it back, I just laughed, I just laughed, and threw my hands up in the air because what are you going to do? Now this is one of the things though that well, I, this
2: is I'm gonna tell you this completely different from my experience of it because I had a holiday party to be at at 4 o'clock at my cousin's. So I was running around Sunday morning getting the last finishing touches on, on gifts, and uh, I came back to my apartment, and I was wrapping gifts, watching pregame. And so the game starts, and I just finished wrapping a, a, a present. And so we're in the red zone, and I got the shower going because I need to shower before I get to this party. So I'm standing in my family room naked watching this play happen. And yelling, I mean, you haven't lived until you yell at your own television naked. And I I was just swearing at the top of my lungs because that was definitely a catch. And then I had to go take an angry shower.
1: (laughs) Nothing's worse than an angry shower, Chris. Trust me. Trust me. Now, guys, this is what I say though. For most of the people listening to this show and a lot of the Buffalo Bills fan base, there's a lot of things going on around the league that you may not be aware of. And with good reason. You're watching the Bills play. For weeks, one of the most infuriating things to me personally when it comes to the NFL football has been that the big story of the week, you know, the thing that you talk about with your buddies around the water cooler at work or when you meet your friends out at happy hour and everyone's like, oh man, did you see that game? The talk isn't about the actual games being played or the talent on the field, but it's about the role of the officials and who fucked up what and what, Call screwed over what football team just this past weekend. Here's three examples a touchdown gets called on the field for the Buffalo Bills, but somehow gets overturned via video review. Now, everyone's aware of this, but you go to the Titans Rams game, a game that the Titans lost by four points. A second a successful onside kick by the Titans gets waved off, waved off. Because it turns out that the reason the the, the onside kick was successful was because the Rams weren't ready for the kick attempt. Why weren't they ready? Well, it turns out that in the game of football, it's up to the sideline judge to inform the coaching staff on that sideline when they're going to TV timeout or whether a change in possession is only going to result in a 40-second official's timeout. Well, the referee on the Rams' side of the ball fucked up. And told Sean McVay, or whoever he, whoever he told, Seth McVay, whatever whatever his name is. Sean McVay. Told him that there was going to be an official TV timeout, which is two minutes usually. Anywhere between a minute and a half and two full minutes. Instead, there was a 40-second 40, 40 officials timeout. So the Rams were caught with their pants down completely unaware because of a mistake that part of the officiating crew made. That being said, the Titans didn't do anything wrong. They kicked the onside kick attempt. They got it. And then the referees got together. And when they figured out what the source of the confusion was, waved it off and forced the Titans to re-kick simply because, ah, well, we fucked up. You have to take it in the shorts. Okay. So now you're punishing one team because of your mistake. Okay. Flip it over to the Packers Vikings game on Saturday night. They, the Vikings run a play on second down And it's third and one, but the sideline crew inexplicably moves the chains, indicating that a first down had been awarded. So the Vikings offensive coordinator dials up a pass play, just a short out route, and the pass is incomplete. And then suddenly you get informed by the head official that it's fourth down and everyone's looking around going, what the fuck are you talking about? Fourth down. They moved the chains. The referees got together, they talked about it, and determined that even though they had made a mistake, nah, we're just going to let it lie. That's what it is. There's no mulligan. You don't get to do it over again. You can imagine how infuriating that would be as a fan watching that happen as a source of an official's mistake. (laughs) And the thing that seems most egregious to me is that unlike the Titans game, they did in the Titans game. The referees said, "Hey, we made a mistake, and now you have to do this play over so that it's fair." In the Vikings game, that crew decided, "Nah, you know what? It wasn't fair, but we don't care. The game's gonna go on. You just have to take it in the shorts." Two complete, two egregious errors by officiating crews. Two completely different ways of handling it. This is just from one week of football. And I'm sure that if I went through every single week, I could find at least half a dozen from every single week of the same thing. This is to illustrate the first point I want to make. We have reached a point where the NFL has lost control over consistency in officiating. It's it's gone. It's dead. I mean, I don't I don't remember as a kid watching the game of football and seeing this many just head-scratching errors and just Egregious mistakes by officiating crews. I mean, Chris, do you remember any of this bullshit going on when we were kids?
2: No, I don't. And but we, all, and, uh, we also didn't have replay until 99 because of uh, that stupid call. I think it was in the Seahawks-Jets game where the referee called a touchdown for Vinny Testaverde because the Jets logo on the helmet looked like a football. And so <laughs> the referee thought it was the football and called a touchdown when he was clearly a yard short cuz he dove for the end zone and he had the ball in his stomach and his head hit the goal line and the side judge was like that's a touchdown cuz it says jets in a football oh. on his helmet that's wow. why we that's why we have replay now
1: wow but Jesus in, but, Christ.
2: but to your your point of the two plays that happened in the in the Titans game and in the what was the other the, one, the Packers Packers game I don't think that the, I think those were way overlooked because
1: Benjamins was a scoring play. Well no, so this is it though, but but this is my point. On even the small things. Not even touchdowns, but on the small things. The NFL can't get it right. I, I mean, it, it drives me crazy. And then to your point, the institution of vi- the institution of video review. What was the point? The point of video review was to be a solution to this, to give teams an avenue to vindicate mistakes that are made on the field the spirit of it was to give teams a way to ensure that the as the rule book became bigger and as the rules got more vaguely written the calls being made on the field at least had some way to be checked for accuracy within the scope of the given call or the given play that way in in your in the case you just outlined if something egregious had been missed by an official or within a call or whatever the case may be, it could be corrected before impacting the complete outcome of a game. However, even that has been eroded and is at this point I have to question the entire practice. And the blame for that rests squarely on the shoulders of one man, the NFL head of officiating, El Riveron. There's a lot of talk going around about how the New England Patriots have now benefited from four instances of touchdown catches being affected by video review. And a lot of that is warranted. I mean, Chris, Houston. Brandon Cooks catches the ball in the end zone for the Patriots, gets his feet down, and then loses control of the ball on his way to the ground. They award them the touchdown anyway. But then in the Pittsburgh game, Jesse James was the tight end. He doesn't
2: survive the ground.
1: He's not awarded that same rule. Hey, you got your feet down. You were, you broke the plane. You were clearly in the end zone. So why isn't he afforded the same? Because s- he didn't he didn't survive the ground, which is stupid. So he's not afforded the same margin of error that Brandon Cooks was. And then in a the game against the Jets, tight end Austin Safarius Jenkins has possession of the football, breaks the plane, and then loses possession after entering the end zone and recovers it. Instead, of, well, no, it goes out of bounds. No, he recovered it. He landed out of bounds. Well, he landed out of bounds. Instead of ruling it a touchdown, the call is overturned and somehow declared a fumble out of the end zone, giving the Patriots possession and taking points off the board for the Jets. And then there's obviously Sunday's call that is pretty much everybody here up in arms. And scratching their heads about how it wasn't a touchdown catch. And yes, it does seem like a massive coincidence that one team has benefited so many times from all these blown calls. Now, I'm not here to turn this into the, you know, the NFL is rigging the the, the game for the Patriots. I'm not I'm not here to bitch about that.
2: Yeah, because we I, already know that that
1: happens. I got that out of my system on Sunday. I'm gonna leave that for you guys, the listeners, to rehash. The bigger point that I'd like to make here is this: <clears throat> in each of these scenarios that I just laid out for you, the call on the field was a touchdown. Enter El Riveron. Now, earlier I mentioned spirit of the rule. You know, what is video review supposed to be about? It's supposed to be a decision rendered, quote-unquote, within the context of a call. Under El Riveron, that simply isn't happening. Now, the first place I saw this sentiment expressed was on profootballtalk.com, and then again on footballzebras.com, which is the SB Nation website for officiating, which is actually a really interesting read if anybody out there wants to follow up on this type of stuff. So the more I start reading into the subject and the more examples that get provided to me, the more it's clear that what's taking place is really, really simple at, at the heart of it. El Riveron doesn't understand the spirit of video review. In each of the examples I just gave, there was a call made on the field. The play went to video review, and in this, and in this the person reviewing the play is supposed to be a fact checker just say hey this was the call that was made can I do I see anything egregious that would make this call you know that maybe the referee didn't see because he doesn't have 360 degree video is there something that that referee missed that might have you know given him the wrong idea of what actually occurred but if not if if there's not if it's not overwhelmingly obvious that the referee was correct you are supposed to side with what's going on in the field and instead, he's effectively re-officiating these plays from scratch as he watches them, making him judge, jury, and executioner, and removing the referees on the field from the equation completely. It's the only explanation that makes any sense. And if you don't believe me, this is Mike Pereira. This is Mike Pereira discussing it himself. It drives me nuts. I mean, it drives
0: me nuts because we have lost the standard here somewhere. Because when we brought we play in, it was to correct the obvious. But it was brought in to correct the obvious
3: mistake. And now what they're doing in replay is they're going to the minutia. I mean, they're trying to they're trying to change the call on the field instead of trying to prove the call right on the field. And that's the problem.
2: Mike Pereira, Monday on the herd with Colin Coward on Fox Sports One.
1: This is just another glaring example of the fact that the NFL's officiating system, for all their tinkering and all their massaging, is a bigger mess right now than it ever has been before. And as more players and members of the media scrutinize these mistakes, these you want to call them errors in judgment, you can. It's a simple misapplication of the rules as they're laid out. The NFL is going to have to react. I mean, this is something that's unprecedented. I've never seen press conferences where players come out and will coaches, players who aren't afraid of being fined, you can find them if you want. But you know, oh, well you you were you know you badmouthed the officiating crew. They don't care. They're saying it. All the Bills players did. Sean McDermott is the king of vanilla. He is the king of doing a press conference or an interview and giving you nothing. He flat out admitted that he was not. He was not satisfied by the league's explanation to him of the call. He's angry about it, and he has every right to be. And then, there's Terry Pagula. Today, on WGR 550's The Instigator, which is a hockey show on in the late morning, Marty Biron asked Terry Pagula what his feelings were on the matter,
3: and he didn't bite his tongue. You can probably find somebody in this country who disagrees with that, and I know one guy would be Al Riveron sitting in New York City, but everybody I talk to, and uh, they're not Bills fans, uh, they're not necessarily patriots, uh, anti-patriots, but they're all baffled by by that call, which is it just wasn't consistent with what replay Replay was developed by this league to correct obvious mistakes. And if you got to look at a play thirty times from five different angles and keep looking at it and looking at it and looking at it. You go with the call on the field. It's what the league's been doing ever since replay started. And as a matter of fact, uh, Dean Blandino, who was the head of replay last year, said last year that was a touchdown. Uh, I don't know what's going on, but we have to fix it. What, what I don't, not, yeah. and, I'm not, and I'm not saying that as the owner of the Bills. I'm saying it as a football fan. We can't have stuff like this happening in our league.
1: That is Terry Pagola from WGR 550's The Instigators. Now, and he went on to say, you know, and Marty Buron asked the question later in the interview, you know, who, you know, is this going to come up during the league meetings? You know, is this something that you're going to have a conversation about? And he said, oh, I plan on having a conversation about it. And he said, do you think it's going to be a friendly conversation? And his answer was, well, if the other person involved wants to make it unfriendly, then, hey, it'll be what it is. I mean, hearing this kind of thing coming from an owner of a football team who's essentially saying, look, I'm going to go on the air and I'm going to admit that this is horse shit. That, I mean, it has to have Bills fans fired up because there's a lot of people who have leveled criticism at Terry Pagula for for being an absentee owner or, or being, you know, oh, he's not really involved or when he is involved, he's involved in the wrong ways and he makes the wrong decisions. This is absolutely the right decision for an owner who gives a shit about the game of football to make. Well, Put I, your foot down. Don't be afraid of the consequences. Let the, let the other owners come to you and tell you you stepped in a line so that you can tell them to go to hell. Well, I'd, re- I'd
2: rather have Pagula come out and talk about this. Exactly. Rather than Jerry Jones, who talks about everything. I'd rather have my owner just own the team and shut up. And when <laughs> stuff like this happens, then, he then I want to hear your opinion. I don't want. I don't want him to be like Jerry Jones, who has his own like segment on a radio show and is always meeting with the media. I'd rather have T Pegs just own the team, speak on important topics like this.
1: I mean, I just <sighs> the here's the point that drives me crazy. I guess, given that the people doing the tinkering and massaging are who, who have essentially brought our rule booking, brought our game to this point. Are the same people who you're going to have to trust to fix these issues? I, th- <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know what to think. I mean, Chris, do we trust them to ever get it right and bring the product on the field back to what made the NFL a household brand? They,
2: I, they better do that next year. I, I, they, there's got to be something happening at owners' meetings this offseason. This is this is just horses- it 30 seconds, this is, here are your angles, you got 30 seconds, if you can't decide in 30 seconds, go the call on the field.
1: All I know is is that, knowing that I have to trust the people who made this mess to fix it, I don't know what to think, and I'm just going to leave you guys all with that, I don't know what to think. Oh man, crack another beer Chris, it's time, we're going to have to do this. Folks, we are kicking off our week 16 recap. Well, <laughs>
2: you already kicked it before the show with
1: Seagrams. <laughs> oh, That's what I get for betting on the Bills. The week sixteen recap, folks. New England big over the Buffalo Bills. I don't even what was it? 37 to 16? Yeah, 37 16. Oh, God. There's st- the numbers, I can't even see them. They're seared in my friggin' brain. Here's the stats of the game as far as I saw them. Tyrod Taylor. 21 to 38, good for 55% completion. 281 yards, no touchdowns, three rushes for 16 yards, six sacks for 39 total lost yards, a 78 quarterback rating. That sounds like a that, t- that sounds like a franchise quarterback. Tom Brady, 21 of 28, good for 75%, 224 yards, two touchdowns, one interception, two sacks, 106 quarterback rating. Running back Deion Lewis, 24 carries, 129 yards, 5.4 yards per carry. One touchdown, 68 yards after contact. Then, five of five receiving, 24 yards, one touchdown. Bills cornerback Leonard Johnson, five allowed five catches on five targets. Good for 100% completion percentage again. 61 yards, 41 of which came after the catch and three missed tackles and run support. Tight end, Charles Clay, 10 targets, four receptions, 37 yards, three dropped passes. Running back, Mike Tolbert, three carries for negative three yards.
2: Why? I thought that was just like a dash, like three (laughs) carries, three yard. That that was
1: actually a minus. Actually negative three yards. Wide receiver, Kelvin Benjamin, Seven targets, five receptions, 70 yards, and one touchdown that should have counted. Now, in the spirit of full disclosure, I didn't watch the entire game on Sunday. You got to put yourself in my shoes. It's Christmas Eve, and I am attending the first ever Christmas party with my fiance's family. They throw an annual Christmas Eve party. They they, they go big. Please tell me you arrived sober. The party started at 3 p.m., However, knowing how important the Bills are to me, Larissa gave me the green light to watch the game before we left and said that we would just go late and show up for dinner. For the first time all season, I didn't have a single beer during a Bills game. For the first time all season, not a single alcoholic beverage. And I can say that I do not regret the decision. I'm surprised you did that.
2: I can't, I can't watch a game without drinking. I have to leave, have at least like two or three down before kickoff.
1: <laughs> when the non-call on the touchdown happened, I was obviously, I, obviously I'm furious. I'm a Bills fan. But that wasn't the breaking point for me. Oddly enough, it came after a pair of calls by the officials in the second half. The first was a defensive pass interference call against Hyde on a play where the wide receiver literally initiated the contact and forced him into it. Garbage call at a point in the game where the outcome was very much hanging in the balance. In my mind, after that... So after that nonsense, horseshit touchdown call and that pass interference call, I'm thinking to my head, all right, the referees owe us one. They have to know that they owe us a call. A few plays later... The bills were issued a a very, very late flag for defensive pass interference in the end zone on Gronkowski. And my fiancé was shocked when instead of blowing my stack, throwing chairs, cussing up a storm, I shut off both TVs, told her to get her boots and coat because it was time to leave. I am out of here. You did it. The game was still tied at 16. But I saw it, and I said to myself, Earlier in the game, I told Larissa, if I had a video, like a VHS cassette tape, of every game that the Bills have played in Foxborough since the drought started, I could play that game right now, and you wouldn't know the difference. You wouldn't know the difference between all of these games based on the way the Bills play, because they do this thing where they act like they're in it for a little bit, but you can already tell that the tide has turned, and they just aren't capable of bringing it back.
2: You gave it in earlier than I did. I shut it off after that. uh, the screen pass for New England to go up 14. And went, well,
1: fuck this. Going to my cousin's. (laughs) I'll tell you, I regret nothing about my decision to go hang out with my fiancé's family on Christmas Eve. I had a blast. I showed up sober. Everyone tried talking to me about the bills, and the only thing that I had any concern about was the fact that someone told me that our long snapper, Reed Ferguson, was limping off the field. That was literally the only thing I had any concern about because to me, the game was over an hour and a half earlier. So moving on into the breakdown of the game, I guess the the place i got to start is a place of positivity. Breakout game for Kelvin Benjamin. When we made the trade for him, it was with the idea that giving Taylor a target that could just outsize people. Yeah, because he's
2: not that accurate.
1: Literally go in and outsize people. Has a big catch radius, pretty good hands, elite size and can come down with 50-50 balls on a pretty consistent basis, would encourage Taylor to throw into the intermediate areas of the field more. And then, because we're the Bills, he almost immediately suffered a knee injury. Now, he's got a meniscus tear that's going to need surgery in the offseason to correct. But what's impressed me, and I, I guarantee you it's impressed Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott. In fact, I have no doubt that this is what they were talking about when they were like, we know the quality of the player that we're getting. He's, he's playing through this meniscus to injury just to try to keep the Bills in contention. That's a fucking gamer. Hats off to that guy. I mean, he, he showed on Sunday the most productive day in a Bills jersey that he's had since he got here. Routinely beat his man to the inside. That was the thing that really impressed me was just the inside cut, wall off his man with his size, catch the ball in the numbers, and go to the ground. Wall off his man, go to the outside. Catch the ball away from your body, take it to the boundary. He he whooped Gilmore like a drum. He he just beat him, just just wailing away on him the entire game. Gilmore looked like shit this game. And a lot of that was because of Kelvin Benjamin. I mean, and even on that would-be touchdown grab, fantastic body control. That's the thing I keep remember thinking was the way he contorted his body to get around, find the ball, get his hands on it, drag his feet, and get them both down in bounds.
2: That's, that's like a, that's a special kind of that athlete. That is a
1: special catch. And I mean, for as many people are that are angry about the call, if Charles Clay had any interest in earning his paycheck on Sunday, which I got a question, he would have caught the fucking ball on the previous play. And then there would have been no doubt that we had scored. I mean, just... Kelvin Benjamin was one of the few silver linings of the day for me. I mean, I was salivating just thinking about it. Just a wide receiver who manhandled the cornerback, who just got paid a shitload of money and is going to be in our division for a long time. I love what he brings to the table, and I'm just dying to see what he can do in an offense with a real offensive coordinator and an accurate quarterback. Now, on the flip side of the ball, you got the defensive front seven. This game, I don't know. It, there was a, in a way, it kind of mirrored, mirrored the previous game. Our defense as a whole kept our offense firmly in the game until halfway through the third quarter. They spent way too much time on the field and inevitably the run defense eroded, which gave way to a bunch of points. That's exactly how the last game happened. The run defense was gashed by the Patriots in the second half two touchdowns and five different players on the Patriots team averaged more than four and a half yards of carry and our defensive backs. I mean, Leonard Johnson missed three tackles. They struggled. Okay. But the linebacking core and the defensive line, I, they allowed backs into the secondary, almost untouched on a number of occasions. When you figure how well these units played last week, it's disappointing because I thought that last week's performance was something you could build off of. And on the defensive line, there was no pass rush; there was no urgency to getting to Tom Brady. Everybody knows that if you're going to beat Tom Brady, you've got to do it and create pressure, but do it without blitzing. That's the key.
2: Plus, you got to did what is it? Disrupt the A gap. Yep. A-gap. So we can't step up and throw. It's your defensive
1: tackles getting into the A gap and it's you you need four guys who can get there so you can drop everyone else back in coverage. Our defensive line just didn't generate any push. I mean, it was after the first couple series, I was like are these guys already tired? They look like they might have already played a football game coming into this football game. We got no push in the offensive line of the Patriots who isn't they're not great. They're allowing some of the I think the Somewhere in the teens, as far as where they're ranked for quarterback hits, they're allowing a lot of pressure and a lot of quarterback hits, and the Bills got none of that. None of it. I mean, it's disappointing to see that after handling them pretty well in the first game, getting a ton of pressure and a ton of contact, they made adjustments to that pressure, and we couldn't scheme up anything new to try to work around it and try to find some momentum. I think that's the disappointing thing for me. Because I like to think that Leslie Frazier does a pretty good job he has this season done a pretty good job in in our wins his games are good I mean Chris can, can you tell me a single game that you can point to and say our offense single-handedly won this game no no his the defense has done pretty well in all of our victories but in our losses maybe my maybe the last time we played Miami in our losses because we haven't had many close ones <laughs> I mean we actually early on in the season we did. And in that game, in those games, they were low scoring, and the defense did their job. Nine to
2: three against Carolina. Nine to
1: three, the game against Cincy, where we had a chance to get two, two tries at getting a touchdown. We had multiple in
2: turnovers in the Cincinnati game. Yep. Couldn't capitalize on them. The
1: defense has been doing its job all season. So I'm really not gonna bag on these guys. But in this game, it was just come on, guys. There's certain things you gotta do. You gotta get that pressure. And Frazier has to know that, and he can't be afraid of trying to get exotic when it comes to figuring out how he's going to do it. Sometimes maybe you got to put three DNs on the field instead of a D tackle. Sometimes you got to go small and just put nothing but D ends on the field. I don't know what to tell you. You have to find a way to get to Tom Brady because if you can't, well, then you're fucked. And we saw that on Sunday. Now, speaking of fucked and things we saw on Sunday, one of the things I can't stand is hearing that there's people who are once again piling on top of Sean McDermott, for a decision that I myself would have made. you talking about that 50-yarder? There are people taking issue with the fact that on fourth and one, while trailing by multiple scores in the second half, McDermott made the decision. He made a gut call to attempt a field goal instead of going for the first down and extending the drive.
2: Totally disagree with that. I
1: know you do. I can just imagine what WGR's winding line sounded like this morning. I mean, i got to fucking sit here and listen to you, Chris. That's bad enough. Just as
2: bad as me having to listen to you. Okay. So and look at you. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> With teeth like this? I don't... Why why kick... Why go... You're down seven. Why kick a field goal there? If you lose, your playoff implications don't change. And if you win, they improve a little bit. Okay. Ta- grow some
1: fucking balls and go for it. Counterpoint. Here's my take. And it's a lot like my defense of the punt during the snow overtime game. When you... When you have an offense that's proven to you that it cannot successfully run short yardage plays on a consistent basis when it matters in the context of a game, okay? In the snow overtime game, we were 0 for 3 on fourth down. In Sunday's game, we were already 0 for 2. How are you supposed to trust that if you go for it again on fourth and one, that your offensive coordinator is going to dial up a successful play? How do you know? As a head coach who has to be responsible for the outcome of this game, I would trust the units that are in the context of that game working well for me. In this game, it's the kicking unit. In the overtime game against the Colts, it was my defense. My defense was holding the Colts in the entire day. I'll trust them before I trust some boob who's proven that he cannot dial up a short yardage play that has any fucking success. So don't, So when you look at me, Chris, if you were my offensive coordinator and you had failed me that many times over the course of the day, I will absolutely not trust you when things are on the line. No, I'll stick with what I know works, which is generally my kicking game. Because I've got a great kicker. I've got an elite long snapper. I've got a special teams unit that does a good job overall. Okay, It's like that old adage, fool me once, shame on me, but fool me twice, shame on you. Okay,
2: If you're going to compare this to... Indianapolis, that is horseshit. Because we were playing Jacoby Brissett. Ooh, we're playing Tom Brady. You gotta match Which is him. Why you take the
1: points? Take the chance. You take the chance. With we're down off- seven with an offensive coordinator who's already blown, blown, blown. Two attempts on fourth down from inside of three yards. He's a fucking boob. I'm telling you, I firmly believe that... Who's not, the quarterback coach? Let him make the call. Not even in just these decisions, but in multiple decisions. As I watch the evolution of our team's decision-making over the course of 17 weeks, McDermott's decision-making has been influenced multiple times by the offensive coordinator's in I get. And how do you blame him? I get that, that's why
2: he, he went for the field goal. It was because he failed him, but you're playing Brady... You got to try to match him. point try to get.
1: You try to get points when you think you can get them, and you rely on the one unit that you know. In your, win, in your wins, there's been one unit that's been able to pick up the slack for you. Against the Falcons, who scored the what is essentially the most important touchdown of the Trey game? Trey White, Tredavious White. In this game, who scored the most? The only touchdown of the entire game. Was that Poyer? Absolutely. Your defense is the only thing that's doing anything significant for you. You you So who do you trust? Do you trust your kicker, who is very accurate and has proven that he can hit 50 yarders? Or do you trust a boob? Who multiple times has failed you when you've relied on him in this exact scenario?
2: You're 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 down seven in the second half, going for a 50 yard field goal. Well, guess what? You make that 50 yard field goal, you're down four points. You need a touchdown. You're out of you go for it on fourth and one.
1: Oh, you want to go fight? Below zero, fighting outside, Chris. I'll take my shirt off, Chris. People who saw the video of the uh, the feats of strength as we ended Festivus on our Twitter feed at Rockpile Report, they saw how tough you actually are. Turns out... I wasn't ready! You have no upper body strength. (laughs) I'm built like a tank. Have you seen my right forearm? Having said that, folks, that brings me to this week's Hero and Zero. In this week's Zero, I had to give it to Tyrod Taylor and Rick Dennison. You folks fell on your face. You get an F-minus in my book. I couldn't figure out which one of these guys deserved more, so I gave it to both of them. They're like that cartoon from the 90s, Captain Planet. Except when their powers combine, it doesn't form a pollution-fighting superhero. They form a shitty NFL offense that makes me want to take my thumbs and drive them directly into my own eye sockets. Nothing was worse than listening to Tony Romo call the game. You could tell that it physically pained him to continue trying to talk about the Bills offense. He was
2: on point with his analysis of Tyrod and the way our offense was being run. Do you
1: remember that throw, Chris, down the field that led Tony Romo to say in one of the most exasperated tones I've ever heard from an announcer, man, the bills just, just the bills just stop themselves sometimes. And then of the play, when they were showing it in slow motion, they're like look at that separation he goes in the NFL. That's an open receiver. Oh yeah. Tony, we play in the NFL. And later he had to, he just kept repeating things like that's a throw you got to make. Or, one of my favorites, I don't understand why he didn't just throw the ball away. Thanks for nothing this week, Tyrod. But he's not alone, because we've got Rick Dennison, the horse that I just can't stop beating.
0: You suck, you jackass.
1: I've hated a lot of people who have worked for this organization over the years. When I say hate, I mean the kind of dislike where I will actually go out of the middle of my way in the middle of January bundle myself up, show up at your house with a complimentary U-Haul, and help you pack all of your shit if it means you get the fuck out of my city that much faster. And this year I was able to add another name to that illustrious list, Rick Dennison.
2: I would love it if if you found out where he lived, and actually like, the day after the season ends you just show up with a a rented U-Haul.
1: I mean, I don't know which play call was worse. The shovel pass to a tight end, up the middle when you know that your guard play on the right side of the line is terrible. If you came from right to left, you could run behind Incognito. Incognito's great. No, you go from left to right trying to run behind Dukas, who just lets the play get blown up in the backfield for a loss. He's a boob. But but we know that, Chris. We know he's a boob. So why do you call that play if you're Rick Dennison? Oh, wait. Because you you don't know that your own players... Didn't the Patriots call a jet sweep with a tight end? They did, and got five (laughs) yards. (laughs) Then... There's the decision to throw twice in the red zone on third and fourth down with only two yards to go. You have LaShawn McCoy. Oh, my God. Or the decision to continue giving the ball to fucking Mike Tolbert when you gave it to him on second and 25. Which the last play was the carry on fourth and two. You have a fat running back who can fall forward for two yards. Why aren't you running the football? Oh, no, we'll save that for second and 25. We'll sneak up on him. You're a fucking moron. Oh, for Christmas, I hope you got jaundice. I hope you catch jaundice. I hope that was your Christmas present, Rick Dennison. Well, that, the Tolbert second and
2: 25 was after a first and 10 that lost 15 on a tie rod sack. Because <laughs> he didn't what Tony Romo said. I'm not going to throw the ball away.
1: Each one of those play calls led to a completely sober outburst of profanity, and I have to say that I threw a bar stool and a chair. Tyrod Taylor is a mediocre quarterback. We're all aware of this, and I'm done beating him up for it. The results and the numbers speak for themselves. But when paired with an offensive coordinator that lacks, from what I can tell, any sort of creativity that doesn't result in disaster, it's a mess. If Rick Dennison's seat wasn't hot coming into this game, It needs to be glowing going into this game against Miami. Now that I've had a chance to rewatch, you know, I I turn on the game pass and I kind of re-see everything. It needs to be glowing white after just having a chance to digest all of this. Fuck the both of you. There will come a day when you're both gone. And when that happens, I'm never going to, I promise to never refer to either one of you by name. Like in Harry Potter, when they call Voldemort he who shall not be named. I'm gonna know you know I'm gonna know Rick Dennison by the by that jackass who wouldn't stop running Mike Tolbert. And Tyrod, you're gonna be known as that scrambler who couldn't really throw the ball. Or the guy who kept throwing on running downs. (laughs) God, I can't wait for those days. And that brings me to the hero of the game and i got to give it to Jordan Poyer.
3: (laughs) I'm the greatest man in the world! Woo!
1: When you score the team's only touchdown and you don't play on offense, you get player of the day honors. I considered giving it to LaShawn McCoy. I considered giving it to a handful of players and even anybody who actually watched the entire game and sat through that on their Christmas Eve. But Poyer edged you all out by an inch. So here we are, ladies and gentlemen, week 17, and everything, I mean, this is it. Sack on the table, nut up or shut up, this is it. I said it Saturday night in our, uh, you know, I did a Facebook uh, Facebook and Periscope live video, and essentially what I came up with was the idea that this is the point in the season where there is no more time for talk. It's time to nut up or shut up. And this weekend, the Bills let us down, and now here we are. Crunch time. The most, probably the most important game of our season. Arguably, the other games going on around us are just as important, but this is the most important game of the season. And it's the first time in 13 years that Week 17 has landed us here. Buffalo Bills at Miami Dolphins.
4: Travis Wingfield. Honestly, I think it's more of a function of Adam Gaze and what he means to this offense. Third and 10com Kenny Stills does a lot for clear-out routes. Locked on Dolphins podcast. Are we worried about Ryan Tannehill not being consistent? But this is Miami, pal.
1: I'm not going to lie to you, Travis. Every time I hear your intro, I kind of wish I was wearing, like, just a white suit. Just a white suit with a... Cream-colored suit. A cream-colored suit. With like a, I don't know, like a hot pink turtleneck underneath it and like a really (laughs) thick belt.
4: (laughs) I'm just imagining Ric Flair as you say
1: that. (laughs) So Travis, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Folks, we've got Travis Wingfield on the podcast once again. Those of you who are new to the show this week, Travis does the Locked on Dolphins podcast. He also writes for FanRag Sports. And he is a uh, occasional contributor. Some of his work gets sourced by the Palm Beach Post down there in Florida. It, uh, Travis, uh, like
2: right off the bat, how are the NFL officials treating the Miami Dolphins this week? Because we've had some problems over <laughs> here.
4: I think if you pulled 32 fan bases, you'd get the same answer from all 32. Even the Patriots think they get job somehow, which is strange, but... I mean, the Dolphins have had some really, really weird calls go against him this year. Most notably, they had a sack on Ryan Fitzpatrick in the end zone where it, I don't know how you could possibly determine that he was not in the end zone, and they called it. They reviewed it and determined it wasn't a safety, even though he was like very clearly in, in the end zone. So it's been that kind of year. I, I've been calling it an epidemic for. The entire season now that the officiating in the NFL is just it's getting ridiculous, and you guys, you guys know that all too well, too. So.
1: Oh, Travis, we pointed out we pointed out three different examples, not even including the Bills example of officiating gone awry just this week. <laughs> it's it's, and it's 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 incredible how it's still it's occurring. inconceivable. Oh, exactly, this is a game, and the thing is, the rules when the NFL says, Oh, well, this is hard. You made it hard. You were the ones who made the rules. We didn't make it this way. We're just trying to watch the game. Oh, Jesus Christ. So as we do, as we preface every game, the pertinent information, the time has been flexed to 425 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you show up at 1 o'clock, you will find yourself watching a bunch of horseshit football that doesn't matter, so don't bother. Weather, partially cloudy, 77 degrees, there is a chance that heavy rain could move into the area between now and then, so you keep your eyes on the weather report. And the spread: the Buffalo Bills are currently a three-point favorite. The under/over is sitting at forty-two and a half.
2: Now I'll take the Bills to win the game, and cover, <laughs> they'll
1: cover, and it'll be an over. <laughs> that's a bold That's a bold call. Now on the injury front, for the Buffalo Bills, there's only really one meaningful name that appears on the injury report. And that's EJ Gaines. He's questionable. Now, it's, it's worth noting, he practiced late last week. He got into practice. I think that McDermott saved him for this game. Last week, we discussed what our defense is and isn't without EJ Gaines on the field. We give up almost 100 extra yards per game without him on the field. I think McDermott knew that, hey... We're not going to win this game, anyway, (laughs) or at least it's going to be an uphill climb. So instead, let's save EJ Gaines, give him one more week to get healthy and go into a must-win game. Because even if we had beat the Patriots, this would still be a must-win football game. So let's save him for the game that really matters and get him out there at the healthiest we can possibly have him. Now on the flip side of the ball for Miami, cornerback Cordrea Tankersley, still questionable with an ankle injury and he has missed the last three games. Running back Damian Williams, questionable. Shoulder, missed last game, plus a couple before that. And defensive tackle Vince Taylor, questionable with a knee injury, injured against Kansas City and may not be available. Now, Travis, my first question, out of those three injuries, which of them do you think are the most meaningful?
4: I'd say Cordray Tankersley because of his replacement. And, you know, that's kind of been my thing about injuries is it's not necessarily who you lose. It's who you have to replace the guy that you lost with. And so you go to Alteron Werner, the, the next cornerback up, and he actually played pretty good against Kansas City. But we all know that Kansas City has, like, one receiver that you have to really pay attention to, and he didn't get him in coverage. <laughs> so he played a good game there. But <laughs> I mean, he's, I mean, he, he he went up against Chris Hogan in that Patriots game. And there were some times where he had some chances to get toasted, and the Patriots just couldn't take advantage of it. So I would say Verner's the number one uh, injury concern for Sunday for Miami.
1: Really? All right. Well, then, I've got some questions for you. Before we really get into the nuances of Sunday's game. Can I ask my one question? Sure, Chris. Why don't you get it off your chest? Because
2: I guess it's, like, football-related. Because I don't know it that well. You guys aren't playing for anything. Is there any chance that you'd like to see Gase play somebody that usually doesn't get a lot of snaps?
4: You know, I, I've actually got a whole uh, like kind of monologue on that that type of situation for the game on Sunday. Should I save that for you, or do we get into
1: it right now? No, you know, what? you launch, launch away.
4: Yeah. So basically, uh, you know, after the Dolphins lost to after we lost to you guys uh, back on the 17th to, to fall to six and eight. Gaze's press conference right after the game was very, very much, you know, we're out of it. This thing is over because they had to have like a couple of miracles happen. And one of those things was the Niners beating the Titans to stay in the race and to have that very slim hope. And he even throughout the course of the week, he was talking about, you know, after that game had gone the way they needed it to, he was talking about how we're talking, we're looking at evaluating jobs in the next two weeks and finding out who's going to be here in 2018. And he had a very much futuristic approach to the game. Now they come into the Kansas city game and it actually wasn't like, like incomprehensible that they could actually get what the help they needed on Sunday to get into a position where this game would have meant something. And if they had won that game, this game would be meaningful to Miami. They got all the help they needed, but I think they played like a team that was looking for the future. And I don't see any reason why they would change that in week 17. So I think it's going to be all about finding guys that can, you know, just get back onto the field. They targeted uh, the new tight end AJ Derby three times on red zone, fade slash back shoulder passes, And two of those were against Marcus Peters, so I don't know what the hell he was doing there. But I I think that they are going to start trying to find some young guys to get some more time. And uh, I don't know if I necessarily have a a specific guy that would do it, probably on defense. Maybe like a Chase Allen, the linebacker. But outside of that, it's just I I don't see this team being prepared or ready to play at all. Wow.
1: Well, that's, that's, that's pretty damning. Now, I'm gonna go- I'm gonna take this a step further since you had your monologue. Before we really get into the X's and O's of what's gonna happen on Sunday, I gotta ask you. So today I'm reading an article from the Palm Beach Post by uh, David George. And it's essentially revolving around Gase's reputation. Now, heading into this offseason, the Bills and the Dolphins were in very different places. The Dolphins had made some trades and acquisitions in the offseason, you know, based on the draft. Pundits around the league and fans in the Dolphins fan base were talking about building off last year's playoff berth and taking that next step towards being a championship contender. And at the same time, we here in Bill's country, fans had pegged them as a team in flux, incapable of winning more than five games. So it's interesting to me that as we kick off on Week 17, the two teams couldn't be in more different places. I mean, in this article which we're going to put a link to in the show's description. The writer compares what Sean McVay has completed this season with the Rams to what Adam Gase was supposed to bring to the Dolphins, noting that even with the injury to Tannehill, his accomplishments aren't nearly as sterling. Okay, They don't stand out the way that McVay has kind of taken Jared Goff and just blown up on the offensive side of the ball. He also goes on to say that he and a bunch of other Miami pundits and fans have reason to doubt that Gates can actually deliver improved offensive performance with consistency. So I guess I have to ask—I've got a series of questions here for you. Do you agree with this gloomy assessment of Gates's offensive approach?
4: Uh, no, <laughs> I don't. I okay. think that I, I think that's a really shoddy journalism to say the, to say the least. Um, you know the Dolphins beat writers and I don't want to get myself in trouble here for a job that I'm eventually trying to pursue I guess one day but <laughs> outside of a couple of guys that they're pretty useless and I've, I've noticed that someone told me that a lot of other teams beat writers and you guys can maybe attest to this too seem to be more fans of the team or at least they want the team to do well the Dolphins beat writers except for like Joe Shad who obviously you guys know I love him and we have we have a bit of a personal relationship I guess now, but um, outside of him, it, it, it's all it's all worthless stuff. That I don't even bother reading. So to to hear that comparison, I mean that's such a sh- like shoddy way to look at things. Talking about you know Sean McVay who's got a pretty healthy squad. Todd Gurley's going for a buck fifty both running and receiving <laughs> every game. It seems like I mean. Well, it's just you don't have the pieces. Like you mentioned, Tannehill goes down. If the if the Rams lost golf and went down to what is it, Sean Mannion? I mean, what would their season look like right now? Exactly. So I think that's a pretty pretty lazy journalism if you ask me.
1: So so to me though, so what I what I did was I read that article and I laughed. I laughed a little bit. I showed it to my fiance, we both laughed about it. And yeah. then I came up with a couple – but it got me thinking. In the mind of most fans, you know, obviously you do the Lockdown Dolphins podcast, you write for fan rag sports. You kind of have an idea, and you you monitor social media. You have an idea of what Dolphins fans are thinking. In the mind oh, yeah. of most fans, does Gase get a pass on this season, considering all the injuries that you guys have endured?
4: So basically you blow it down to two things, right? There's the people you respect and the people that you just kind of scroll past their name when you see them in, on Twitter or wherever it is. And the people that you scroll past are the ones that want to fire Gaze and, and fire Mike Tannenbaum and get Steve Ross to sell a team and replace Tannehill and get rid of Jarvis Landry and just blow everything up every single year that you don't get a win or you know, every week you don't get a win. But then the people that I do respect have a lot more, uh, you know, they see things more not just compartmentalized by a week by a week and they, they look at the big picture. And, yeah, the, the Dolphins, you know, you look at their offense; they're, they're on pace to be the, or they're on track to be the second lowest scoring offense in Miami Dolphins history, which is crazy to me to think that with weapons they have in the running game that they've had with you know Kenyon Drake and J.J. at different times. But um, I think that you can look at the quarterback as a big reason for that. I mean, the game against you guys, for instance, three picks and four fumbles. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be hard to score points when that's happening, dropping the ball every other snap it seems like. So I think that Adam Gates does get a pass. I mean, the hurricane, the, the lost bye week. I mean, you got to remember the Dolphins are playing their 17th or their 16th consecutive game on Sunday. Never got a week off this year. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your your offensive line coach doing cocaine in his office. I mean that kind of falls under (laughs) the head coach's watch too. But nonetheless, it's it's no good either way. (laughs)
1: No, we uh. I so, think
4: yeah, just uh, there's just a multitude of things that have come down and, and haven't been right. And you know, I think you guys can attest to this too. In the fact that the difference between a six and ten team and a ten and six team really isn't that great. It can be a few bounces here and there, a bad Kelvin Benjamin touchdown reception call turn, you know, something very minimal like that. You're gonna <laughs> it bring it up and make really me drink. That's you. what you're gonna do. Thanks,
1: <laughs> I appreciate
4: that. I just got over it. But just, I mean, it's not that big of a difference. And last year they had so many plays where you know. Kiko Lons were getting a pick six in their own when they were backed up against their own goal line with the 24 24 game to win the game. And just, you know, these late games, they got a bunch of late luck or, you know, good things that happened to them late in games. It's been the opposite way this year. So I just think that the pendulum kind of swings. I think they were always like a six, seven, eight, nine, 10 win team. And it's just the way the ball bounces sometimes.
1: Now, one of the things that I found interesting the, 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 first and foremost, the reports that Gase was fighting with Landry on the sidelines. This week after your loss against the Kansas City Chiefs. Okay. I, I don't know. It's, and the sense that from the fan base and from a lot of the, even if you don't respect him, a lot of their local reporters talking about how they feel like Gase might be losing the room just based on his, the way he is, the way his coaching, the lack of success. <clears throat> I guess, is there anything to that? I mean, have you, have you heard anything like that? I mean, the fact that Jarvis Landry and the head coach are fighting on the sideline in front of everybody, that's a problem. I mean, for as badly as things have gone during some of these Bills games, I don't know that a single player approached Sean McDermott and had it out with him.
4: So the way I see that is is winning takes care of all that. I mean, we've all seen the famous Peyton Manning versus Jeff Saturday shouting match that they had in a game years and years ago. (laughs) That's one of my favorites. I mean, Tom Brady. Yeah, that's, it's awesome. I, I love seeing that, and you know, him talking about Peyton Manning, getting extra reps in that week in the weight room and how he felt tough. But, uh, you know, I've seen Tom Brady, you know, yelling at guys on the sideline and getting into the shouting matches and the set, the Seattle Seahawks defense getting into these shouting matches. I just chalk it up to two guys that are competitors that want to win. And Jarvis Landry actually had a point when he did that because the Dolphins, it was a sequence down in the red zone where they went back-to-back fades. I mentioned it earlier, back-to-back fades to A.J. Derby in the end zone against Marcus Peters, the best cover corner in football for my money. And you get a guy that is just active for the first time this year with the Dolphins, and you're throwing him the ball. And then it was a 3rd and 24 after a stupid Ted Larson penalty, a personal foul penalty that pushed him back 15 yards. So it's 3rd and 24, and they throw a little bubble screen to Jakeem Grant and not Jarvis Landry. And Cutler promptly throws it way over his head. So just kind of like the entire oh. microcosm of the season, like the mistake, the penalty, the bad play call, the bad you know throw from the quarterback – all just kind of came to a head. I think Jarvis Landry sees the season coming to an end in that one instance. And just, you know, you guys know how he is. He loses his head every once in a while. And Adam Gaze, they have a they have a great relationship. And I've heard that from multiple people, including Joe Shad, that they absolutely love each other and they love their competitive spirit with one another. And so I think sometimes when you have that, hot heads are going to clash every once in a while. And I, I'm not too worried about it.
1: So now I guess i got to ask the quarterback position. Now You just mentioned Jay Cutler throwing away the Dolphins' season, effectively. <laughs> Just chucking it right over the head on a screen pass, just throwing it out of bounds. So, (laughs) Jay Cutler gets brought in to spell Ryan Tannehill because of the injury. But, But even with Ryan Tannehill, the offense wasn't that impressive. It was good, but it wasn't great. Now, what is the outlook on the quarterback position for the Dolphins going forward? I mean, I've read all sorts of crazy things. But they all insinuate that fans think that if a more talented option exists in the form of either a draft pick or a big free agent signing, a la Kirk Cousins, you know, that the Finns can and should pull the trigger. Now, I've personally looked at the numbers, and the team could actually afford to do it this year. When you consider the fact that Ryan Tannehill's cap hits for the next two years are less than $5 million for dead money. So if they were to move on from him, it wouldn't cost him much. I mean, they, when you put that in the terms of, hey, what are the bills paying for dead money for players? We're paying more than that to get rid of a D tackle. So, if we, <clears throat> I mean, clearly they want to try to upgrade at that position. You guys have a quarterback that could be upgraded from if he isn't going to return and be an elite quarterback. So, if you guys manage to wrangle in a good, you know, a good first round draft pick at quarterback. Or, like I said, Kirk Cousins. That that idea has been tossed around a bit. I mean, what do you think is going to happen at that position? Do you have faith that Tannehill is going to be the guy?
4: So the way I view quarterback play is you have a tier of guys that are they are unfazable in, the, in the sense that no matter what you put around them, they're going to play well. And that's like the Tom Brady's, the Aaron Rodgers, the Russell Wilson's, Drew Brees, those kind of guys that you just, you know, you get that guy and you're, you just thank your lucky stars that the next 10 to 15 years is going to be awesome quarterback play. And then you have the next tier of guys where – the surrounding cast really does matter. You can have guys like Joe Flacco go on awesome runs when he has a good receiving core and a good running game and a good defense that he can lean on. And Ryan Tannehill's in that in that tier for me, you know, and, and that includes guys like Matt Stafford or Matt Ryan. You know, I know Matt Ryan had a crazy year last year, but I, I consider him to be one of those guys that surrounding cast really matters. And Tannehill's the same way. And I did a breakdown of Tannehill's career throughout the last like five years, you know, from his rookie year in 2012 when his top targets were Brian Hartline and Devon Bess. You know Brian Hartline goes for a thousand yards under Tannehill and then disappears off into nowhere. And then you go from the offensive line. The following years you got guys like Tyson Clabo, Mark yeah. Colombo, Sam Brenner. I mean just a mix, a, a mismatch of horrible offensive line play. And Tannehill's always had to kind of mitigate that. And all of that comes together. I think the coaching staff of the Miami Dolphins, and this is another thing that Joe Shad told me, was he said that if anything this year has given the team a much greater appreciation for Ryan Tannehill because you go from 23 points per game last year with Tannehill with pretty much the exact same offense. The only difference is Brandon Albert, who was banged up and not very good last year, and you go from Jordan Cameron to Julius Thomas, and that's about the only difference outside of the quarterback position. So you go from six points fewer per game. You go from Jarvis Landry going from 12, 12 yards per catch to nine yards per catch. Kenny Stills from 17 to 13 yards per catch all these guys productions have taken a huge dip and so the dolphins have really put their eggs in the ryan tannehill basket and i will do something for the rock pile show right here and give you guys a nice little uh, uh teaser for the neck for next season and say that if ryan tannehill barring injury is not under center on 2018 opening day i will go ahead and chug one of your guys a seagram's for you
1: oh there it is a seagram's bet. Ba- right in
0: the love i love
4: it <laughs> seagram <laughs>
1: fantastic so, now in preparation of our game on Sunday. I got some questions for you. I, and we always start on the offensive side of the ball. What's with the second half shutout? I mean, the Dolphins ended the first half of Sunday's game against the Kansas City Chiefs down by a touchdown. You know, you're losing 17 to 10, okay, but that's not an unheard of comeback. And then pitched a shutout in the second half on route to a 29-13 or no, that that's what it was, thirteen to seventeen. And then you mm. pitched a twenty nine to thirteen loss. What adjustments did the Chiefs make to shut down your offense so effectively in the second half?
4: I think two things. The first thing was the, the, the Dolphins offense in the first half was Jakeem Grant breaking tackles, which is crazy to say because he hasn't done anything in his career to this point, but he has a screen pass where he broke a tackle and went 60 yards for a touchdown. And the, they were talking about like Jay Cutler's passing numbers. Like it was something impressive. Like he threw a bubble screen and it went for a touchdown. <laughs> he, like, threw a <laughs> he threw a screen yep, pass. He threw a screen pass. I think quarterback he air
1: up. yards matter more. When, when you talk about a quarterback who throws more air yards per completion, that's more impressive to me than when you just look at the overall numbers. Because if you look at just the box score, you can say, oh, look at the yards he threw. Oh, he did great. Yeah, well, like you said, it doesn't take into account the fact that that was an incredible effort by a really talented young wide receiver who just padded Jay Cutler's stats for no good reason. 100%
4: 100% spot on and I can point back to your guys' game last year when, when Matt Moore played against Buffalo and he had a big yardage day but I mean there was that Devontae Parker catch where he breaks a tackle and goes 60 yards for a touchdown it's like that's a simple crossing route that he just made a really easy throw so I, I think I agree with you that box scores for quarterbacks in one game don't mean a whole lot it's when you start trying to starting to compile throughout the course of a career or the you know, like whole season that really starts to matter so but what, what happened in that game was. So the first – it was red zone problems, which has been the problem all year. The Dolphins throw the ball in the red zone more than anybody else in the NFL. They have two rushing touchdowns on the year, which is crazy to think about. Wow. And they just – they don't compete down in the red zone on both sides of the football. So offensively, I mean, Jay Cutler did the exact same thing did against you guys. He was dropping snaps all day. I don't know if he just not doesn't want to play in the cold, if he's not prepared for it. But he cannot catch a damn snap in the cold weather. So he drops like four balls. Puts you in like second and 13, second and 14 consistently. And the, the, the Dolphins offense just isn't built to win with that. He's missing throws. I think his first throw of the game was like a wide open crosser. He spikes it into the ground. <laughs> so between that and then the, the, the thing about the season this year that's been most frustrating is penalties. And they keep getting these pre-snap penalties or a unsportsmanlike after the play where it pushes them back from a third and nine to a third and 24. It's just everything that could go wrong this year seems to go wrong. And you know it's it's been one of those years where you just I'm just ready for it to be over.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, listen, we're ready to put your season to an end too. Don't don't worry about that. Now, when I look at your offense, when I look at your skill position group, you've got Kenyon Drake. He is I loved him at Alabama. I knew he was going to be an NFL talent. I was mad when you guys drafted him because I'm like shit. I'm going to have to see this guy eventually. (laughs) <laughs> and for the longest time, he was buried under your death chart, and I was really happy about it. This year, you've unleashed him, and he, he's a dual threat. He can run the ball. He can catch the ball. He's a, he's a dynamic athlete. Then you've got Jarvis Landry, all-world talent at wide receiver. And you've got Kenny Stills, who can threaten the defense deep with his speed. Considering how well we corralled You know, our secondary really kind of corralled your playmakers in, in our last matchup, and then the number of weeks that have gone by that you guys have had to watch tape, and the fact that our D just got exposed very badly in a matchup against Brady and the Pats, how do you expect the Dolphins offense to attack our defense in this rubber match?
4: That's a good question. I, I think they're going to have to try to run the ball first and foremost. You mentioned Kenyon Drake, who has really, by all accounts, been more consistent than Ajayi was last year during his break, you know his breakout Pro Bowl mm-hmm. Pro Bowl run. Easy for me to say, uh, but he's just been consistently breaking tackles, consistently getting positive yardage. He's finding the hole earlier than Ajayi did, so he gets himself into a position where we're now in second and seven or second and six compared to you know second and eleven because Ajayi had so many negative runs to go with the big ones as well. But I think that. One area the Dolphins have to be really concerned about, and the Bills, you, you talked about loving Kenyon Drake. Tr- Tredavious White was my favorite cornerback in the draft class last year. I absolutely loved him. So seeing the way he's been playing and the way he gets his hands on footballs, and the Micah Hyde also was like my favorite free agent last year as well. So you get those guys. Jordan Poyer's having an awesome year for you guys. Anybody that can take the football away, which is something the Bills, have, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's something the Bills have kind of...
1: <laughs> yeah, all in our wins, that's year. been a, it's a staple.
4: It's been a staple of Bills
1: victories this season.
2: I need to cut in here. Exactly. I need to cut in here real quick, Travis, because I got to get this out since this came down during recording. Uh, the Buffalo Bills have elevated Malachi Dupree, Marcus Murphy, and Ricky Hatley to the fifty-three man roster, and they have placed Andre Holmes
1: and Travaris Cadet on IR. Yeah, you're gonna have more big, big, big wide receivers. That's what they're essentially bringing in big special teamers. Big guys who can play the wide receiver position.
4: That's a shame about Cadet. I always liked him. I thought he was having a good year or a good last couple of games too. So that's, uh, that's a bummer for him. You want to talk about a
1: shame about Cadet? It was one of those things that I actually it and this is the thing. For as much as I hate the New England Patriots, I realize I don't hate them. I hate Tom Brady. I hate Bill Belichick. <laughs> I hate their guts. I can I'll see them both in hell. I know that. I know I will. And I and I I can't wait for the day it happens. But having said that, I don't hate the Patriots as a whole and the reason why is because you look at some of them and some of them are just you still see it they're decent guys on that play where cadet very clearly just destroys his ankle his his ankle is facing a away that your foot shouldn't be facing hmm. Trey flowers is walking around immediately just puts his hands on his helmet and he's trying to talk to him and you know he's just trying to be encouraging like hey man, Oh, don't worry, it's not that bad. Oh no. <laughs> like that's that's sportsmanship right there. Some of these guys have class. and for that, you know what I mean, I, I respect them. I, I respect that. In that moment, it kind of reminded me that I don't hate all these guys. There's a handful of them eh, and they know who they are. <laughs> everyone, everyone who listens to this show knows who they are because I rant about them every time we play against them. I'll see them in hell. Otherwise, the, a lot of these guys are just, they're, they're athletes. It's, they're at the office and they're watching a coworker just get brutally injured. That's, it's rough.
4: Yeah, which is good to see. And also, uh, I think we can add Gronk to that list too after his, you know, the thing he did to Trey White was, that, that really upset me. That I, I really, really pissed me off. So put him
1: on the list too. Oh, oh, he's there. He's been there for a long time. I met him personally once. I got a chance to talk smack to his face. It was one of the highlights of my entire life. And I almost got killed for it, but it's all right. It's all right. I'm still here. I'm still breathing. Yeah, it was worth it. (laughs) So on the defensive side of the ball, the red zone, you just talked about how the dolphins throw more than any team in football in the red zone. Now, watching the red zone defense on Sunday from the dolphins you guys seemed pretty stout right at the beginning of the game but ultimately it just didn't hold up over the course of two and a half quarters i i guess right now what do you see as the being the biggest thing stopping them from getting their opponents off the field and out of and keeping them out of the end zone
4: Something I actually just talked about in my podcast when I recorded before I came out with you guys is their inability to find mismatches both on offense and defense. I talked about it before the Chiefs game with Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill, how those guys are just matchup nightmares. You know, you put Kelsey on a safety or a linebacker, you're not going to have a good time. You put Tyreek Hill on anybody that doesn't run a 4-3, you're going to have a bad time also. So these guys, these teams have these matchup problems. The Dolphins just cannot do it. I've been scouting a little bit of college this week because, you know, the season's over doing that stuff now and just trying to find linebackers that can, <laughs> you guys know how that goes. Just try to find linebackers that can replace Kiko Alonso and Lawrence Timmons. These guys are so slow and they can't change direction. So you get down in the red area and, you know, you can put Travis Kelsey, you know, you you see the personnel grouping and you match it on defense, and then Kelsey splits out wide. Now he's got Rashad Jones one-on-one. And and I like Jones in that matchup, or at least I like Jones in that matchup against most guys, but Smith throws a perfect ball. Kelsey has a great catch, and there's just nothing he could do. So the, the lack of guys that can create mismatches on offense and the lack of guys that can prevent the mismatches on defense is the biggest reason.
1: Now when it comes to the Buffalo Bills as far as mismatches go, Who do you see being mismatches for your defense from the Buffalo Bills offense?
4: Without a doubt, you guys saw in the first game, LaShawn McCoy and that little wheel route he ran for the touchdown and and just the way he can, I mean, I I find it so funny that him and Kiko have such beef because it's almost like that, you know, well, the Patriots and uh, Dolphins are rivals, whatever. It's like, no, they're not rivals. You have to have a a balanced rivalry for for a rivalry to be a rivalry. And it's like, you know, Shady and Kiko want this rivalry to be a thing, but Every time they play, Shady whoops his ass. So it's like I don't really see where the the competitive balance is there. So Kiko Alonso and Lawrence Timmons trying to play in space against him—it's just not going to (laughs) work.
1: No, and you know what? He usually is our X factor, and every single—he is the fourth. He's only the—he's the fourth player in the NFL, fourth ranked. He accounts for thirty-three percent of all of our offensive yards. Oh yeah, Doesn't doesn't surprise me. It's incredible. And that's, that doesn't happen on very many teams. And the teams that it does happen on, those teams don't usually have winning records. I'm, ama-
2: yes. I'm amazed that uh, Tyrod Taylor seems to play his best games against you. And I honestly think it's because you guys wear such flamboyant c- colors. His eye, His processing works <laughs> faster because those colors are so bright. And he just burns you guys all the time.
4: You know, consider me a fool for this, but when you started talking, that started that sense, I thought for sure I was getting a profound thought out of Chris here, but, uh, you know.
2: That is a profound <laughs> thought. You see bright colors, your mind works
1: faster. When, when Chris starts talking, you almost think he's got a point, point, then after about five seconds, you're like, oh, no. What did I do?
4: I, I, found myself, I, I found myself agreeing with him. I was like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, Tyron can run the ball. We have slow defense. It makes sense. But, no, the aqua-colored jersey, that's definitely it.
1: So, one of the points I want to bring up about your defense Your team took a ridiculous number of penalties last week, 11 in total with seven on the defense, including multiple defensive (laughs) holding calls, every one of which starts a new set of downs. What is driving this lack of discipline? Is it just the injuries that are bringing in backups that really aren't up to the task, or what is it? I
4: think – I think it all stems from the lack of pass rush and it kind of goes in two ways, which is crazy because you have so much money tied up in these guys that can get off to the quarterback and it's just not happening. And you guys saw that Cameron Wake missed that sack against Tyrod Taylor on the first drive two weeks ago, he had a, the exact same situation happen against Alex Smith where he misses a tackle for a sack that would have gotten, gotten him off the field. And they haven't been able to get home. They sit back in the soft zone defense. And you guys know if a pass rush doesn't get home, you're going to start grabbing, you're going to start trying whatever you can to cover guys. So it's been based on the lack of pass rush. And then you look at the pre-snap offsides penalties, which has been absolutely insane. Jordan Phillips has been doing his whole career. And Dominic and Sue, I, I want to say, had six neutral zone infractions this year. So it's just like mm-hmm. – you know. <laughs> It all stems from that defensive line not being as good as they should have been this year. Wow. So, now,
1: is anyone pointing the finger and saying, hey, look, lack of coaching, lack of direction? And I guess my biggest question is, what are the things on your defense that the Buffalo Bills can't exploit this week? In your opinion. The same.
4: Yeah, the same thing, man. The lack of speed and pass rush and just with Tyrod, you know, Chris talked about it. I don't think he's thrown a pick against Miami in his career. I think he has something like 10 touchdown passes in his career. So he's just always a thorn in the Dolphins' side. And if uh, if he stands back there and they don't, you know, I don't know I don't know how you change it because you have to find a way to, to spy him, but like spy with like a, a delayed type of blitz where you can get pressure on him and then put him into a situation where he steps into more pressure because they aren't winning enough matchups to create a problem for a guy like that. And you, you know, you guys know this very well too. You have to make Tyrod make quick, short throws because that's where he kind of struggles. He's and awful. Th- the Dolphins have allowed him to run around in the backfield. They've allowed him to throw the deep ball, and it's just killed him. Those are his two biggest stri- uh, strengths, and he does it every time he plays us. So, predictions. Where do what do you think
1: the final score is going to be? Come Sunday at about seven thirty at night.
4: I think I was pretty close last time on the twenty-seven and seventeen. What was it, twenty-six to fourteen? So I'm, r- I'm riding pretty good on that streak. I had a good. Uh, calling the score last week against the Chiefs. I'm going to say the Bills, they, it stays close for a little bit, but in the end it ends up a laugher. I'll say Buffalo 31, Miami, so let's go 16. Wow, you're really –
1: whoa, you're buttering my bread here, sir.
4: I'm Chris. telling you, it's a U-Haul game. The guys are getting the U-Hauls out. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, what about you? What do you think?
1: Buffalo
2: wins 27-17. to 17.
1: I'm going to say it's a much closer, Dan. I'm going to say it's 24-21 Buffalo Bills. It takes a 55-yard Houshka field goal to win it. And then you just get obliterated drunk. No, 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 because here's the question. All of the playoff games have been flexed. All of these games with playoff implications have been flexed. Chris Seagram's bet. Is this the year that the Buffalo Bills break the drought?
2: I can't go back on my... I can't go back on my word because I've said it all season. We're not making the playoffs, so I'm going to stick with it. We're not making the playoffs.
1: All right. We already have a Seagram's bet on this. I'll see you in hell. I'll drink my Seagram's if we don't make it because I'll tell you, you, I'm I'm an eternal optimist. I can't help it.
2: Yeah, you thought we were going to beat the Patriots twice. I
1: love this team (laughs) so much. That I, I and I just look at this and I'm in a very zen place about this. I didn't freak out over our last loss because I realized this is the one that matters, and and our our destiny has never been in our hands for the last three weeks. It hasn't. It's up to us. We have to go out here, win, and just get lucky.
4: That's it. And if it doesn't, is it, what's the other, what are the other things that has to happen? T- Tennessee oh. has to lose.
1: Oh, we talked about it earlier. Tennessee and the Chargers have to lose, or Baltimore has okay. to lose. If Baltimore That's loses, right. we're automatically in. If if Tennessee loses and the Chargers win, and we tie all three, we lose. <laughs> we're yeah. not, there's there's a ridiculous number of scenarios where we don't make it.
4: I mean, it's, well, here's here's what it hinges on though is the fact that the Jaguars already have the three seed. Like they cannot improve or go worse than the three seed. So do they play their stars against Tennessee because the Titans are one of the worst teams in the NFL right now? If you ask me, in terms of the last like four weeks. But I think if they get, you know, Chad Henney and, and a bunch of backup from the Jaguars Whoa. defense, they should uh, be able to beat that team.
1: Surprisingly, Doug Marone came out this week. I talked about it earlier and said, we're in this game to win it. They okay, have good not, news. I've done, well, I here's to hear the, that. Here's the thing. They haven't lost back-to-back games all season. And the players that were talked to after last week's loss, they said there was no joy in the locker room knowing they'd won the division. Because they knew they lost a football game and that they hadn't lost back-to-back, which meant that they were going to have to go out there Week 17, and instead of riding pine, they were going to go out there and try to avenge that loss. That makes me feel good. (laughs) That makes me feel good. Yeah, sure. Especially knowing it's a Titans team missing DeMarco Murray. He's not going to be back.
4: It would have been typical, like 17-year drought fashion, for the Bills to get everything they had to have happen, and then have the, tit- the Titans beat the Jaguars back up to knock you out.
1: <laughs> right, that, that, that's exactly it. So we, we're gonna have a puncher's chance, but we gotta get by Miami, folks. It's gonna be real interesting to see where we wind up. Travis, thank you so much for coming on to our show tonight. I very much appreciate
2: it. Yeah, where can uh, where can we find you on Twitter, and uh, what do you have coming up on the off season?
4: Yeah, thanks again for having me, guys, and I hope we do some more shows in the offseason with the draft and everything. But you can find me at Wingfield NFL, my last name, Travis Wingfield. You can find the show at Locked on Fins. And then uh, throughout the course of the offseason, uh, starting on New Year's Day, I've already already got three of the pieces written up. It's going to be an exit interview piece looking at every single position player by player talking about where they were good, where they were bad, and what their status is for 2018 for the Dolphins. So all you Bills fans love the Dolphins. Check that out. And then, um, yeah, just lockedondolphins.com. I just brought on six writers. They're going to help me produce content every All single day, right. trying to basically become the ultimate Dolphins fan network. So that's my uh, my goal for the offseason, and hopefully the Dolphins can can uh, have similar aspirations for themselves.
2: Travis Wingfield, Locked On Dolphins podcast. It's been settled. I have the better physique than Travis Wingfield. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I I think that you two are hilarious. One of you has dad bod. One of you looks like a 14-year-old girl between the two of you.
2: Well, you told me I looked like a 14-year-old last week with my shirt off. So we both look like 14-year-olds. Well, there you go. Now, Beer Watch, if we get in the playoffs, Beer Watch gets extended another week. Oh. Yes. But as of right now, you suck for your stupid pick, 300 beers. We've <laughs> surpassed 300 beers in Beer Watch, so... Uh, looking at her board, uh, who else? Uh, my dad. T- dad, your pick sucked. 306. We're way past that. Uh, Reed's girlfriend, Cassie, who Drew didn't know who that was on her board. <laughs> she guessed 304. She's out. Uh, my, my landlord, Brian. Brian, stupid pick. 301. Not even close. And then finally, you got me. 311. We're past 311 right now. <laughs> I, I sucked at picking it. We don't have a whole lot of people left in the uh, in the in the uh, prediction. It's like
1: one of those survivor pools. You're getting down to the end of the year. Yeah. Who knows who's going to come out on top? You're going to have to tune in next week and find out. Guys, thank you so much for showing up tonight. I very much appreciate it. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Kruger. Tune in next week to find out how the bills fared. We're going to see. Hey, listen. Embrace the moment. That's going to be my message that I leave you all here with here tonight. Embrace this. Okay, it's the first time it's happened in 13 years that we've been this close. Win, lose, or draw, embrace it. All right? I love you. Hopefully you love me back. I got to go. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. And this has been the Rock Pile Report.
5: Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day for movement.